1 Corinthians 2, 6-16. We do, however, speak a message of wisdom among the mature, but not the wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. No, we declare God's wisdom, a mystery that has been hidden and that God destined for our glory before time began. None of the rulers of this age understood it, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. However, as it is written, what no eye has seen, what no ear has heard, and what no human mind has conceived, the things God has prepared for those who love him. These are the things God has revealed to us by his spirit. The spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God, for who knows a person's thoughts except their own spirit within them? In the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. What we have received is not the spirit of the word, but the spirit who is from God, so that we may understand what God has freely given us. This is what we speak, not in words taught us by human wisdom, but in words taught by the spirit, explaining spiritual realities with spirit-taught words. The person without the spirit does not accept the things that come from the spirit of God, but considers them foolishness and cannot understand them because they are discerned only through the spirit. The person with the spirit makes judgments about all things, but such a person is not subject to merely human judgments. For who has known the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. Well, um, when I was a uni student, I started to, you know, take my faith more seriously. Um, I think I always thought that I did, but when I was a uni student, I, I really started to take my faith seriously. And for some of the time I went along um, to my Bible study group at CU, I wasn't super committed to it, but I went along and, you know, got to mix with other uni student Christians. And I got involved in ministry at my church and I joined an outreach called Theo's Coffee Shop with Scripture Union. Every summer we went away for two weeks to Queenscliff and did outreach to youth. And so this was all me taking my faith seriously. And even in my church, the youth minister let me preach when I was 19. And I did my first sermon when I was 19. On, it was on the burning bush, God revealing himself to Moses. Went for about 45 minutes and it was... I don't know what I said. I don't think I had a main point. Anyway, nothing's changed. No, but the thing is, I was taking my faith seriously and I would have long DMs with my grandpa and my dad about theological questions and I, I read Christian books and my mind had started to be opened. And I remember that I started to think of myself as pretty mature in my faith for a 20-year-old. And I used to subconsciously rank the people around me in maturity levels. Uh, Jack is clearly less mature than me because they are more flaky with coming to church. I used to think things like that. And they can't, Jack can't explain the doctrine of the Trinity, but, Trinity, but I can. Uh, whereas Jill, she's probably more mature, mature than me because... Um, you know, she knows her Bible way more than me and she prays, I know, quite a lot more than I do. You know, I'm sort of caricaturing what I was like back then. But I did have these judgmental thoughts about who was more mature and who was less mature of the people around me. And I have to say, I'm a bit embarrassed about what I was like then. Anyway, a few years go past and I end up being the congregation leader at St Hilary's in Kew for the youth and young adults. And I found myself surrounded by a few other people that were just like the way I was a few years earlier. 
Not everyone was like this, but there were some like this. So there was, you know, a few people who had just started doing Bible college, you know, and they'd done their first year of Ridley and they knew how to explain the atonement like nobody else. And some of them, you would, you know, have this kind of air of expertise about them. There were also others who um, um, had this kind of sense of, you know, being, um, you know, they were, they were amazing worshippers and they, they, they had this kind of idea of how worship should be done. And the, the extent to which one was mature for those people was the extent to which they worshipped and with passion. There were others who were very much into justice and, you know, and if the extent to which you were seen as a mature Christian was how much you got into that issue of justice, whatever it was. And I remember one particular person saying, how could you even call yourself a Christian unless you really give everything to this issue, whatever the issue was. I remember being criticised by some young adults wanting more meaty sermons. We want more meaty sermons. The implication being that they were too mature for the baby food that I was offering. They were kind of a, a Burundara zealot, and I could relate to them because I'd been an Ivanhoe zealot, so, you know, I, I was getting a taste of my own medicine. Now, in a similar way, the church in Corinth were obsessed with who is mature and who's a baby Christian. And they had their own special markers for maturity. So it seemed that, you know, being a dynamic preacher was a sign that you were... Uh, a mature Christian. Also, uh, if you, in this church, if you exercise the more charismatic gifts of healing and speaking in tongues and miracles and, and all that sort of thing, prophecy, then you are more, a more mature Christian in this church. And the thing is, this idea of a more mature and a less mature Christian is not really a biblical concept. I mean, not in the way they are talking about it, not in the way I thought about it when I was a young adult. Jesus did talk about infant disciples and he talked about who was the least and who was the greatest. But he, when he did talk about these sort of categories, he talked about them in the opposite way to the way I thought about it, the way the Corinthians thought about it. He was the complete opposite of what... He was saying the complete opposite of what everyone expected. The Corinthians want to talk about mature and infant Christians. So what we see in this passage is that Paul goes, oh my goodness, if you want to talk about mature and infant Christians, okay, let's talk about mature and infant Christians. He's sort of talking on their terms and he's going to engage with their ideas but he's going to turn it all around. And he's going to start by defending himself because one of their beliefs was that Paul was a dumb apostle, he wasn't a very good speaker and why do we need to even follow him? He's not as dynamic and engaging as some of the other people we hear on the, in the marketplace. But Paul really responds powerfully here and he's going to show them that he really is an apostle and that God has really gifted him to lead the church and he's going to actually flip things around and he's going to say what it means to be a mature Christian. And he's going to talk about how to be wise, how to be spiritual and how to be smart because he knows that's what they want to know about. So how to be wise in verse 6 to 10a. He, Paul shows them that 
A true, the true Christian maturity is having God's wisdom. He says, you become wise when God gives you his wisdom. And he comes to his own defence and says, I know you find this hard to believe, but we do speak a message of wisdom among the mature. Even though I'm not the most eloquent preacher, even though I'm not the most dynamic preacher you've ever heard, he says, what we preach is not the wisdom of this age, it's not the wisdom of the Greek philosophers, it's not the wisdom that you hear from the travelling teachers in the marketplace, but it is the message of wisdom. We declare God's wisdom, he says in verse 7. And then he shows just how different God's wisdom is from the wisdom that they'd been chasing after. He says it's a mystery. It's a mystery in the sense that it was a mystery, only known to God, but now has been revealed to the world in the person of Jesus Christ. He has made this mystery comprehensible, and he's done that by his spirit. And this mystery is the paradox of the Lord of glory. It's the paradox of the Son of God on the cross. The wisdom of God also is, has been hidden. It was hidden before time began in God, but he was ready to reveal it. And God's wisdom was destined. It was destined by God for our glory before time began. It's not just some, you know, last-minute idea, God's wisdom. It's not the latest fad, God's wisdom. It's huge. And often overly zealous Christians who think that they're superior to others fall into the trap of getting hooked into the latest idea, into to intellectual fads. But God's wisdom is so far from the latest fad. Patrick, who I was just interviewing, he, he put me onto um, an author called Alan Jacobs. And so I've been reading Alan Jacobs and I, I thought, oh, I'd better listen to a few podcasts of him to get to know the author. And I was listening to this podcast that he did, I think, last year. Uh, so Alan Jacobs is an English literature scholar. He's a literary critic and he also happens to be a Christian. And so he writes for a broad audience, not just a Christian audience, it's, it's a, just a mainstream audience, but also he's writing with a Christian framework and engaging with Christian ideas. Anyway, I listened to him on this podcast talking about the problem of the hyper-politicised age that we live in, where you have these shallow interactions between zealots on Twitter. And he, sa he says that he just gets so annoyed by this, whether they be political or intellectual or religious zealots. And he said, when you become a zealot, you are clear about what battles need to be fought and this is your thing. You're going to fight these battles. But you lose a sense of common humanity. People who disagree with you are no longer human beings. Rather, they are obstacles to your cause. And this kind of faddish wisdom, this false faddish wisdom, the wisdom of the rulers of this age leads to destruction. In fact, Paul says the wisdom of the rulers of this age led to the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. But here is what um, the theologian Gordon Fee calls the divine irony, because the very ones who were foolishly trying to do away with Jesus by crucifying him were in fact carrying out God's prior will, which was destined for our glory before time began. 
The rulers of this age arrange for the crucifixion of the person who they believed was a false messiah, only he wasn't a false messiah, he was the Lord of glory. The Apostle Peter observes this irony and says to them, you killed the author of life. So returning to the Corinthians, Paul says to them, don't be immature, don't pursue the shallow wisdom of those faddish rulers of this age. They are passing away and their ideas are passing away. And worse, they are the ones implicated in putting Jesus on the cross. And he concludes his point by quoting bits of scripture from Isaiah 64 and 65. It's kind of a mashup of bits. He says, What no eye has seen, what no ear has heard, and what no human mind has conceived, the things God has prepared for those who love him. These are the things God has revealed to us by his spirit. God's wisdom can only be known by people who love God and have it revealed to them by God's wisdom being given to them, revealed to them by the Spirit. So if you really want to be mature, he's saying, realise how weak you are and how much you are totally dependent on God. See, you can either be weak and foolish or you can be a ruler of the age and either way, you, you're on an equal plane in the sense you, you, you all have no access to divine wisdom unless God gives it to you. You cannot have any insight that's of any significance unless God gives it to you. The only wisdom you can have is the wisdom God gives you. Then he talks about how to be spiritual from verse 10b to 13. He shows them that the true Christian maturity involves a true spirituality that comes only from the Spirit of God. And he uses this Greek philosophy principle which is like is known by like. So let me explain. You might have travelled overseas. I don't know if you've had this experience. And I have had this experience several times. You know, when you're travelling overseas, say you're in Paris and you're in an art gallery and you're looking at a Monet painting and you're standing there and, you know, you're surrounded by tourists from all around the world and then you just look over and you think to yourself, I reckon that person's an Aussie. You know that vibe you get? And you look at them and the way they're carrying themselves and the kind of clothes they're wearing. And, and then you hear them speak and they are Australian. And you go, how is it that I'm on the other side of the world and I happen to be standing next to an Aussie? But you recognise them because you are an Aussie. Once um, in 2010, Joe and I were in New York on our baby moon and uh, before Leo was born, and we were in Washington Square Park, which is that park near New York University. You might have seen in the movies, also Sesame Street often gets filmed there. It's where they've got a mini Arc de Triomphe. And Joe and I just walking along in the middle of the day. It was hot, I remember. And there was this kind of guy with cheesecloth pants and long dreadlocks walking in the opposite direction about 30 metres away. And I said to Joe, that guy looks so much like Owen Downey. Now, Owen Downey's a friend of ours, musician, um, you know, we know, knew him from church and all that sort of thing. Anyway, walk a bit further, turns around, there's Owen Downey. We just recognised him in, the, in a crowd on the other side of the world. We had no idea that he was there, this Melbourne bass player musician that I was a friend with. You know, when you know, when you are a, a person from a subculture, and uh, you just recognise people, you can pick them out of, out of nowhere... Like is known by like. 
And in the same way, only God can know God. Listen to Paul's logic in verse 11 and 12. For who knows a person's thoughts except their own spirit within them? In the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. What we have received is not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, so that we may understand what God has freely given us. We human beings do not, on our own, have what it takes to even comprehend God, to recognise God. But only like is known by like. Only God can know God. So what Paul is saying is here to, is to be truly spiritual. If you want to be spiritual, you have to receive the Spirit of God. And then God's Spirit in you becomes a link between you and God. Once you have the Spirit of God living inside of you, you can spot God in a crowd. You can tell the difference between God's voice speaking in a Parisian gallery and somebody else's voice. You know, there he is. The Corinthians want to be spiritual people. In fact, their church is what you would call a super spiritual church. They're really into it. They are so obsessed with being spiritual that they've forgotten what it really means to be spiritual. Real, authentic spirituality begins with God. He gives it to you. There's no other way. Like is known by like. So here's some application for you. It's very straightforward. Get your spirituality strategy in order. One of the more popular sermons in the Mary Creek um, podcast of the sermons was one I did, I think, in our first or second year, which was um, called Freedom, Does God Care If I Do Yoga? And um, the point, point I made was, I don't want to say it's a sin to do yoga, but you do want to be careful about what you're building your spiritual strategy on. And many Christians say they do yoga for the physical exercise, and I totally get that. And they will say that they use it as an opportunity to pray. And I think different yoga studios are more sort of spiritual than others or more focused on that stuff than others. But at the same time, when we realise that the source of true spirituality is God himself, then we need to ask ourselves the hard question about what foundation we as Christians are building our spirituality strategy on. Is your pursuit to become spiritually alive and at peace in your mind a pursuit that submits humbly before God? Or is it a practice that has its foundation in some other religion? A lot of attention, you know, has been put on in recent times on American evangelicals and their obsession with conspiracy theories. But interestingly, recently, the, the Guardian newspaper did a whole series of articles on the well-being industry in Australia and its obsession with conspiracy theories. Yoga instructors, celebrity chefs, health and food experts, and well-being therapists of many varieties promoting anti-vaccination, afraid of the 5G mobile phone network, questioning the truth of COVID-19 and all that sort of thing. And the Guardian journalists have concluded that the reason this is happening in the well-being industry is because all kinds of random people can just stick their hand up and have a voice and they can be an authority all of a sudden and they get involved in these kind of social media echo chambers telling each other their conspiracy theories. And I think... I talk about this because I think in some ways inner-city Christians in Melbourne are just as susceptible to seek out our spiritual nourishment from sources other than God and find ourselves listening 
to people like the leaders of the wellbeing industry in Australia. And we have to make sure that we are not blinded to the fact of who it might be informing our alternative spiritual practices. We don't want to be like the Corinthians who, as theologian Gordon Fee puts it, who I already quoted, he, he says ironically that they were spiritual because they, they were truly spiritual because they had received the, the, the Spirit of God as Christians, but they were acting unspiritual. And they were pursuing wisdom, but yet they were pursuing it in the wrong places. If you want to be truly spiritual, give your life in humility to Christ and receive the Holy Spirit and build all your spirituality practices on the one true God. Become a disciple. Paul writes in another letter to the church in Philippi about his personal discipleship strategy, and he says, I want to know Christ. I have not yet fully reached that point, but I am straining forwards to reach that goal. I forget where I've been before. I'm striving forwards, and anyone who is a truly mature Christian will have precisely the same attitude. To be mature is to be truly humble before God. It is to know that you haven't yet arrived and it is to keep pressing on. So if you really want to be a mature Christian, you can do it from day one. You don't have to have been around for decades. Ask yourself, are you humbly pressing forward towards Christ? If the answer is yes, then Under Paul's definition, you are mature. And realise that you could also, on the flip side, have been a Christian for decades and know your Bible better than most people and have been in many ministry roles and foolishly think that you've arrived and you've stopped pressing forward. And in that case, you're an infant Christian. Well, the last thing he talks about is how to be smart in verses 14 to 16. Paul says, if you really want to know about how to be mature as a Christian, then here's how to be truly smart. He says, if you have the Holy Spirit, you have the mind of Christ. He says, with the Holy Spirit and the mind of Christ, Christians can make judgments about all things, in verse 15. And just to clarify, when Paul says all things, he doesn't mean that if you become a Christian and receive the Holy Spirit and the mind of Christ that suddenly you can speak with an authority on science or politics. You know, it's, it's, it's not a license to mansplain. Um, no, what you can do is you can make judgments about all things that relate to salvation. You can make judgments about God's mystery that has, was formerly hidden and is now revealed. That's how to be truly smart in a way that counts. If you're a school teacher, you know that there are different intelligences. There are people with a real strong developed intelligence around numbers, others around language, others around the arts, others around how to just think abstractly. Shane Warne, he looks now like a Botox sort of has been with, with peroxide hair and a bit of a doofus. But when you get him on the topic of cricket, he's a genius. He has a high cricket IQ probably one of the greatest cricket geniuses of all time. And when he speaks about a cricket match, I want to listen because he knows what he's talking about. Imagine if you could have spiritual intelligence. 
Imagine if you can read spiritual writings and understand them or speak to spiritual people with insight. Imagine if you could talk to God and listen to God. You would be the Shane Warne of spirituality. How incredible would that be? And the thing is, you can. Anybody who comes to God in humility and says, without you, I am nothing. I'm just a poor sinner. I have no insight. I have followed the false wisdom of the latest trends on Twitter. I've got caught up in the hyper-politicised shouting matches of this age. I'm a religious zealot and I've got no idea. But I want to be truly mature. I want to receive God's wisdom and be wise. I want to receive God's spirit and be spiritual. I want to be joined to Christ and have his mind. Well, you can do that. And God promises to show his grace to you and transform you. And that is true maturity in Christ. Let's pray. Lord God, um, we pray we can be mature Christians, but only in the sense that is important. We pray that you give us your wisdom. We pray that we are humble. We pray that you give us your spirit and that we, we know that we are, our spirituality only comes from that. We pray that our, the mind that we care about is the mind that we have of Christ. We pray that we become more increasingly discerning in who we listen to. And we thank you for your grace. Amen.